Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 19. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talk to Andrew Reinhardt about Archeo Gaming, what it is, and what sort of research is currently underway. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. As we mentioned, we have Andrew Reinhardt on, and I'm going to give a brief little biography that he can uh, add to later because there's there's quite a bit. Um, Andrew Reinhardt is an archaeologist with an MA in archaeology and art history, and he's uh, working on a PhD uh, in progress for archaeology with a focus on digital heritage. Uh, he's the current director of publications for the American Numismatic Society and writes a popular blog, Archaeogaming. Ar- uh, Andrew was the archaeologist for the Atari Game Over documentary, which we'll talk about, and has written extensively on Archaeogaming. Andrew is also a co-host of the 8-Bit Test Pit podcast right here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. So, welcome to the Archaeology Show, Andrew. Thanks very much, Chris, and uh, hello, April. Thanks for having me. It's always our pleasure. Awesome. So let's start out, um, you know, keeping in mind that that we we aim this show to be towards a, a general audience that might not uh, know about some of the things that we talk about on, on some of the other shows, uh, which is why I thought it'd be great to have you on in this format, because I, I feel like sometimes the 8-Bit Test Pit podcast is also um, kind of aimed toward an audience that knows about archaeology to begin with, and then we're just bringing in archaeo gaming as a, um, as a, you know, as a topic. And um, so let's what is archaeo gaming for our audience? You know, what is what does that even mean? Yeah, um, archaeo gaming, as I define it, and I, I, I try to use pretty broad strokes. Uh, I, I basically say that archaeo gaming is the archaeology in and of video games. Mm-hmm. So we can take a look at video games as being artifacts. Um, you know, they're they're part of what we call material culture uh, in the modern age. Basically, stuff that we use every day. Um, and, uh, because the stuff that we use every day and they happen to be, happen to be video games, uh, they fall under the uh, rubric of archaeo gaming. Mm-hmm. And then 
we take a look at the archaeology inside video games too. So there are a lot of games out there. You can think about Tomb Raider. You can think about Uncharted, uh, the Indiana Jones games, uh, and the like, which basically have an archaeological component to them. You play as an archaeologist or you do archaeology in them. And then going one step beyond, and the thing that really floats my boat is taking a look at how these games are put together from the inside out, seeing what makes the games work, seeing how games change over time, and treating that in an archaeological way. Let's start out by doing maybe some, uh, I guess, some examples of what you're talking about. You know, something that um, maybe a popular game, you know, you mentioned Tomb Raider, things like that, but what... What, let, let's dig into it a little deeper and, and figure out what, what kind of stuff would you study in that game. So, so in, in any of the Tomb Raider games, you're, you're basically taking a look at, at old stuff or things that are made to look distressed. You're looking at architecture. You're looking at artifacts. Um, and you know, you're basically, you know, in the modern world, looking at these presumably you know, ancient things, even though these things would have been coded you know, three or four years ago. So it's really this kind of interesting split between something that is made today, but made to look uh, really, really old. And so you have that illusion going on. And uh, with the newer games, you're actually dealing with stuff called photogrammetry. Um, that's just a fancy word of saying we are doing scans or super duper photographs of stuff. And we're putting that into the game for the player to interact with, or for you know the player's avatar in this case, Lara Croft to, to act, mm -hmm. to act with or act upon. Um, when you're also playing a game like Tomb Raider, um, you're getting into the field of archeological ethics in video games. And this is something that uh, Megan Dennis is working on also at the university of York, um, where it's like, okay, um, you know, you have a company like Crystal Dynamics, they're making this game Tomb Raider, and what are they doing in the game that is kind of shady or sketchy, um, you know, when it comes to raiding tombs or when it comes to taking artifacts? And, you know, for games like Rise of the Tomb Raider, for example, you really don't see the outcome of what it is that you're raiding or what it is that you're doing when you're solving these kinds of puzzles. You might find an artifact, but it doesn't really appear in your inventory. It might appear, you know, as an achievement or a trophy or something like that, and you can kind of spin it around and take a look at it. But you never have the chance to like give it to a museum. You never put it in your pocket. You never sell it. Uh, and so that was pretty cool. And that did not used to be the case with some of these other games um, you know, mm -hmm. that you would play. Or like if you're playing Uncharted, um, you're a treasure hunter. <laughs> Even though you're <laughs> in antiquity, um, you're out there for the treasure. You're out there for the goods. And, uh, and so you know, it's kind of a guilty pleasure to play games like that. But uh, at the same time, you know that in the real world, um, you're not going to do that. It's like you know, playing Grand Theft Auto. I'm not going to steal a car. I don't mm -hmm. think I'm going to steal a car. <laughs> um, but, right. but at the same time, it's fun to play uh, and, and fun to imagine. And so there's kind of this fine line about, well, you know, what's fun, what gets a little bit uncomfortable, and uh, you know, how can games kind of communicate things in an archaeological way yet still be entertaining. And, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting because we've had discussions on other podcasts recently about um, – about how we look at artifacts, um, how we how we kind of glorify artifacts, um, and that's what you know your modern, uh, to use a sort of disparaging term, relic hunters. You know that's what they do. They're they're out looking for artifacts, and whether they're metal detecting or doing whatever, that's the focus of what they're doing. And I feel like that's always the focus of any any game that's uh, associated that has an archaeological component it's always about some sort of artifact and I think the Laura Croft stuff is is very similar to that there might be a an, a bigger story involved but it's usually involved just like Indiana Jones you know it involves some kind of idol or 
No, no, you know, and that's the thing, you know, that's and and, and that's the trope, and and I think this would have happened even without Steven Spielberg and even without George Lucas and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark coming out in 1982. I, I really think that, that this would have happened because there's always this romantic ideal of the archaeologist, uh, especially, you know, the early, early 20th century archaeologist as explorer, as adventurer. And mm-hmm. back then things were a little bit different. And so, uh, you know, when you're making a game and you want to have an adventure game, um, an archaeologist is a great character to have because they have a reason to be in that space. You know, they have a reason to be in the jungle. They have a reason to be in Egypt. Uh, and what happens to be in Egypt, old stuff. And so you can go in and and look at old stuff and what kind of old stuff? Well, artifacts and idols and gold and treasure. And you can go one step further. And I I think that pretty much every archeology span game or game that has archeological relics in it, those relics are either a fabulous wealth fabulous beauty um or they have really bad magic and consequences if you happen Mm -hmm. to interact with these things and and typically you're either ending the world or or fighting ultimate evil you know because of these artifacts that you found and i would really love to see game developers kind of get around that trope and use archaeology and artifacts in in a perhaps different way that still contributes to a meaningful narrative or a story yeah, I mean, every other game you see does that. I mean, you brought up Grand Theft Auto. I, it's been a, <laughs> my God, it's been a really long time since I even saw that game. Um, you know, so I, you know, but I can, I can almost guarantee you right now that the major point of that game, like all games, is really more of a quest or a journey. It's, it's the, you have to do something yeah. in the end, and that's the goal. Whereas with archaeologically themed games, like we said, it's all about, it's all about the thing, and the thing should really just be a part of the story. And really, what you're trying to do is complete this story, or help tell this story, or do something like that. You know, you can still make that yeah. exciting too. Yeah, yeah, you certainly can. And that's not to exclude other kinds of artifacts that you find. I mean, you're going mm-hmm. around, and and you're you're playing in these, you know, uh, in these spaces that are foreign to you as a as a player. Um, and you might be in ancient Greece or ancient Rome or or or, or in Egypt or someplace else. And, you know, tree, you might be going after this big artifact or this fancy thing, but in order to make the environment realistic, there's all kinds of other stuff that's just strewn around. You know, the, the graphic designers, you know, the artists who are responsible for the game have also put in broken pots and mm-hmm. other kinds of crockery and utensils and tools and, <laughs> and all kinds of other things that are just kind of lying around, which make the environment interesting. You can't really interact with these a lot. Uh, depends on the game. But, but still, mm-hmm. you, you do have that, that more common stuff you know the, the courseware along with the fineware um mm-hmm. you know which is which is interesting you know to me as an archaeologist and to, and to me as a player it kind of completes that environment um and that's uh, you know as a, as a a former dirt archaeologist uh if i can use the term um <laughs> we saw a lot more courseware than we did fineware you know we were excavating in italy or we were excavating in greece i wonder how much of this also comes down to kind of the complicated history of archaeology and museums where mm-hmm. you're talking, you know, when you're talking about the archaeologist as explorer and going out in the, you know, beginnings of archaeology in the 1800s, you know, we were collecting for museums and for private collections, and we wanted the big, shiny, fancy things. And oh, yeah. when people go and see archaeology in a more academic or educational sphere, it's often in the context of museums, where all you see is big, shiny things. And when you're a tourist traveling, you don't go to the tiny house mound, you go to Petra. 
and yes. you see the most glorious archaeology that you can possibly see. And so that's really what archaeology is in the mind and the news stories too. You know, everything about archaeology beyond video games really is kind of the glory uh, and fancy stuff that we do. Yeah, I'm. I keep hoping this will change uh, over time. I mean, you could, you certainly, if if something fancy gets found, it should be featured because it is part of the assemblage. That it's part of the group of objects that have come to light via excavation, um, along with other kinds of things. Um, the uh, the better museums or the or, or or the better curated exhibitions are ones that integrate those fancier items with everything else uh, to give it context, to give it placement. Um, you know, when you look at this. Uh, at the old, you know, the old timey, old school way of collecting. Um, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, you're going for a private collection. You're you're uh, you're on the grand tour and you're picking stuff up for for home as souvenirs, um, or you're 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 collecting for museums. And with uh, you know, with with that in mind, you know, you're dealing with this kind of colonial worldview too, uh, where it's like we can take care of this stuff better than they can. Um, you know, what are they doing with this stuff? We should have it because, you know, we're, we're really big into classics or something like that. And I think that's changed over time too. But, you know, when you're dealing with this, this, uh, element within video games, um, it's still very much that colonial model. Um, and, uh, you know, you can play some games where that, that actually comes into question. So, uh, the curious expedition is a game that comes to mind, Hmm. um, where you can take a colonial approach or not. Um, you can, you can, you know, interact with, with non-player characters and other kinds of scenarios, uh, in, in a variety of different ways so that you can be a 19th century douchebag. I'm sorry, you can bleep that out. Um, or, or you can, you can be in there like a, like a social justice kind of person, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and deal with things that way, you know? And within the context of the game, within the context of the game, you can actually do both and see what happens. Um, And that's one of the things I really like about doing archaeology in video games is that I can I can mess with something. And if something bad happens or if I break something or whatever, I can always go back to a save point um, Mm -hmm. and renew and try it again. And, you know, that's not the luxury that the excavating archaeologist actually has. You break the pot. It's broken. You have to you have to take it to the pot mender. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if I break something, I can always go back in the game, and it's brand new, and I can do something else with it. Andrew, what uh, of all the games that you've seen um, that have an archaeology theme to them, or something like that? Um, can you think of a game that's like that's come as close as possible, or maybe actually achieved this and like quote got it right? Like you played the game, you looked at it, you said, "Man, these guys did their research, and this is this is." You know, hitting all the hitting all the buttons that we like to see, um, and 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 they just did everything right. Is there a game like that yet, or are there any that are really close? Uh, you know, I, I've I've yet to, and you know, there'll be other people out there who are probably like screaming at their <laughs> at their phones or whatever, <laughs> saying, "You idiot! You didn't mention this game." Um, <laughs> to think of a AAA title that um, fits the bill. It was like, yeah, there's archaeology for you. Okay, um, you mm-hmm. know, I was I was playing Uncharted Four. I finished it. Uh, about a month ago and in it you know there's there's a level you know where there's an archaeological excavation set up and this is pretty early on in the game and it's abandoned but but it's cool because you can see the tools you can see you know tents and things like that and and it it looked pretty authentic um you know i'm like okay that's cool but you you don't really do any archaeology and and uh you know all of a sudden you're getting shot at and so that reverie that you're in looking at this archaeological stuff is over because you're trying to save your hide um Mm -hmm. There, there's a, a game that came out, gosh, it might have been 10 years ago now, um, from a company called Dig It Games. 
and it's called Romantown. And Romantown was pretty cool because the purpose of the game was to learn about archaeological technique, content, and context as you were excavating a little bit of a town. And so you could move your mouse around on the screen, and you would be digging through different strata. You'd find things, get to put stuff together. And and that was cool, too. So, you know, as, as far as an indie game goes, you know, that that game, Romantown, was pretty cool. Um, but but uh, it wasn't pitched as, like, you know, amazing entertainment or something. It was it was there as a fun game that happened to be about archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's that's the only one that, that really came close. And the reason why is that the developer herself was an archaeologist. So, you know, yeah. yay. Um, but I haven't really seen anything like that since. Yeah, I've interviewed them uh, at conferences before for Dig It Games for a couple of things that they do. And and you're right, yes. most of their stuff has a has an educational um, goal to it, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think in, in this day and age, I really God, you know, we, we talk about this with CRM archaeology, the type of archaeology I do. And and, uh, you know, we talk about this all the time. Like, yeah. you know, you can make this you know, stuff interesting. You, you totally could. I, I, I'm just thinking out loud now because um, because this is a super interesting topic. I hadn't really thought about this before, but but um, you know, if if you ever read the book Thieves of Baghdad by Anthony Bogdanos, he was the mm-hmm. the Marine um, who was really responsible for kind of figuring out how to repatriate all these artifacts that were stolen from the Iraq National Museum, right? Oh, wow. From the Archaeological Museum, and yeah. so. You know, what a great game that would be where you might mm-hmm. be a cultural attache uh, embedded with a unit. And and I actually have friends who do this. I, I can't say who they are, but I have friends who do this uh, in, in Iraq and elsewhere uh, in the Middle East um, where where that's their job is to 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 figure out you know what's being stolen and where and how to get stuff back and what happened and documentation and stuff. And in the meantime, they have an escort of army dudes, um, you mm-hmm. know, and so so you've got something like that going on. And then you know, I could see integrating something into like uh, one of the Call of Duty titles, you know. Uh, where, where, you know, you get achievement points or whatnot for, you know, saving the museum, you know, from attack or or something like that. So you can, you can certainly, you know, as a, as a a developer kind of work this stuff in, it doesn't have to be the main game mechanic or or, or what you're doing, you know, when you play, but it can Mm -hmm. certainly, you know, add that kind of, 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 of realism, you know, to how cultural heritage is treated and how modern people are, you know, trying to take care of the stuff, especially in areas of conflict. Right. Well, I want to take it a little bit different direction uh, from this, but still archaeology within games, but in a little different way than people might think. Or maybe they are thinking this way, um, because that's kind of the first thing I thought of. But I'll, I'll get into what that means uh, in just a few seconds after the break. Hey, everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, (laughs) we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. 
With their easy-to-use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. All right. Well, welcome back. Uh, I have one last quick question for Andrew before we move on to Chris's new mysterious topic. Um, so Andrew, while I've been listening to you, one of the questions that I've just sort of had percolating away is, how did you get into this? I mean, it seems like a really interesting melding of two passions. Um, but I was just really curious, how do you decide that what you are going to do is the archaeology of video games? Well, um, okay, I've been... Uh, full disclosure, I was born in 1972. And, you know, the first arcade cabinet games were coming out in like 77, 78 in the United States. And so I was able to go to arcades with my dad and we would play Asteroids. We play Space Invaders. Um, you know, when they when they first came, <laughs> when they first first started you know, showing up and we started to go to arcades and stuff, I was terrible at these things, but I really liked it. And so, you know, I've been able to grow up kind of in parallel with the history of gaming, you know? So I, I, my friends had an Atari 2600s. Um, I had an Intellivision. Um, I had a, a DOS 386 machine that I would play bootleg games on like King's Quest and, and, and then we got a Mac. And so I played my first, my, I played my first Infocom game. I played Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so that was pretty cool. And, and, you know, now, you know, I'm playing these games where, it's it's photorealistic and there are so many buttons and everything's really fast and everything's really gorgeous and the sound design is amazing and so you know it's just crazy to be able to to see all this stuff and so uh, I think the thing that that really kind of flipped the switch though as an archaeologist in me um, was I started playing World of Warcraft uh, you know there it is the the elephant in the room you know <laughs> everybody's like everybody <laughs> talks about World of Warcraft why is that and it's like because it's an amazing game. And I started yeah. playing, I don't know, 2009, maybe two, 2008, you know, so it hadn't been out for too many years, you know, when I first started playing and I would go and I was just transfixed by the idea of lore, uh, you know, and, and I'd be walking around and there'd be, you know, columns and, and empty temples and, and, uh, artifacts and, you know, in later versions of the game, there's actually an archeology span skill that you can do. Um, but for me, it was just saying, wow, I'm in this orc capital called Orgrimmar, or I'm in Thunder Bluff as a Tauren. And I am, I am seeing these distinct cultures and, and everything from, from clothing to, to buildings, to the way that the weapons are made. And the fact that you could actually make stuff uh, and trade stuff and everything, you know, plus you had auction houses and everything like that. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And so the penny really dropped at that point. Um, and then, you know, I started the blog archeo gaming, 
in, in 2013, you know, I'd gotten my master's in archaeology back in 96 at the University of Missouri at Columbia and, you know, had still, you know, kept in touch with archaeology and whatnot, never really gave it up. And so all of a sudden I'm like, I'm back. And this is why I'm actually doing the PhD now is because I can't, I can't get it out of my head. You know, I'm, this keeps <laughs> me up at night. So, 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 um, you know, with, with the blog in 2013, you know, this dovetailed neatly into this bizarre Atari excavation, um, that was, was going to be happening. And, and, uh, you know, that might seg into other questions, uh, later in the podcast, but, but everything seemed to come together at once. You know, I'm certainly not the first person to think about archaeology and video games. Far from it. Um, you've got people, you know, who, you know, like uh, uh, Ethan Wattrall or Colleen Morgan and those guys, uh, you know, who are working at these things in the early 2000s. You know, I'd been playing around in a virtual space called Second Life um, doing Latin and building things in there <laughs> in a kind of an archaeological way. Yeah, we had a Latin villa back in 2008. Uh, we actually had the first, like, international... Um, Latin conventiculum where people from, I think, four different countries um, came together uh, in that space to talk Latin at each wow. other. Nobody really done that before. So that was really cool. And and it started to show me that, yeah, there's there's a definite link between classics and, and video games. What about archaeology? Um, what I'm interested in now, though, is, is how these games are actually archaeological sites as well as artifacts. And uh, we can get into this a little bit later, but but taking a look at, at what I'm calling machine-created culture, where where software has been written to make things appear that haven't appeared before in the history of the universe and might not appear again, and what does that mean from an archaeological standpoint? You, that's actually a perfect segue because uh, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. You know, we've we've talked about archaeology in video games and represented in video games, but now some of these, like you brought up. Two of the ones that I wanted to mention, World of Warcraft, which I've never played, actually, and um, and Second Life, which I've been in Second Life. And it's, you know, we're, we're living through, we're really living through history, because correct me if I'm wrong, but World of Warcraft was one of the first massive worlds where you could go in as a player and just insert yourself into this world. And it's not a world that exists on your machine. It's a world that exists on their servers. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's something when you make a change, other people will see it. Hey, just like real life. So, um, I think, I think as we look back on this, you know, history is going to look back on, on second life probably, uh, for different reasons. And then world of Warcraft as, you know, kind of foundational worlds. And if these worlds continue, well, then some of the early things that happened in those worlds, some of the earlier stuff that's still hanging around, the code is still there and you can still go see or or see this. I don't know. I don't know if you can go to oh, World yeah. of Warcraft and see like the site of a battle or something somebody built, you know? Uh, man, this is this is really, really <laughs> there's so much to talk about with this. It, it, it's amazing. Um, with uh, with World of Warcraft, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't the first you know, MMO. I mean, you can go back to like play things like EverQuest, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, games like that that were coming out in the early thousands. And you can even go back, you know, to the eighties when you have multi-user dungeons or MUDs mm-hmm. where you've got, you know, people interacting on screen and these are kind of text-based adventures that you're, that you're going on with the procedurally generated, you know, caves and monsters and stuff that are happening. When I say procedural generation, it means that there's code in there that makes things appear. If you ever played like real Dungeons and Dragons, uh, uh, I used to play AD&D as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I really should get back into it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I should. I mean, everybody should really. You know, tabletop mm-hmm. games are cool. And and uh, but 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 at the, with with uh, 
with procedural generation, it's kind of like wandering monsters, you know, random encounters where you don't know that something's going to be around the corner and then you, you turn and there's a, there's a thing and you've got to kill it and you've got to roll. And so, you know, you're, you're dealing with that uh, in a text-based adventure, but, and then later they've actually added visuals to it. Um, and, uh, you know, that stuff's just incredible. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, but yeah, with, you know, the, the fact that these, these worlds do exist and they persist, um, you know, you've got in World of Warcraft, you have a, a tale of, I think it was a virus that, that happened, you know, in the world and made, uh, you see, I'm going to botch this and you'll have to go and fact check me, but, but, uh, <laughs> there was some kind of, it's like, yes, fake news. Um, uh, ba- back in the day, and this, I think this is still in vanilla. Wow. Well, you know, they had this, this virus that basically, killed everybody. Um, mm. and, and, uh, um, you know, they have video recordings or something of this. You, you have, you have, uh, you know, the very famous Leroy Jenkins video, uh, where about that. a player named Leroy Jenkins who basically, you know, just completely and utterly, um, destroys this group's chances of going into, uh, you know, this particular space in the game. And, and it was so outrageous. and so amazing. It was really one of the first viral videos of, of any kind of MMO, gameplay mm-hmm. um that happened and guys notorious he he like shows up at, at comic-con and stuff and talks to people um you know about this whole thing <laughs> he's just like world famous <laughs> because of this event that happened in a video game um and uh you know be, because games like like world of warcraft or wow for short uh, exist on several different servers you're basically looking at, at a multiverse several different universes off, operating at the same time some things happen in some places and they might not happen in other servers. Um, and so you've got that going on and you compare that to a game like Eve online where that's just one space that's shared by everybody who plays. Mm -hmm. And in there you've got real world histories and people are actually writing nonfiction books on the history of Eve and what happened and when and why. Um, and so, so yeah, yeah, you're looking at RTO gaming in that way and uh, it's, it's you know, completely, you know, rife with, uh, with, with things to, to write about, especially in an academic way. So, I mean, unlike in the real world where basically what we're recording is trash, uh, unless you've got some sort of weird preservation, like, you know, Pompeii where, you know, it was kind of a catastrophic event that just preserved everything. Um, you know, mostly what we record 99% of the time, like we said, is trash. It's it's broken things. It's discarded objects. Now, you have a unique um, you have a unique circumstance in a video game online world that would actually make sense from a development standpoint, where code just auto self destructs. Um, you know, maybe after it gets too old, like if you've got World of Warcraft running for 20 years, do you want 20 year old code in there? Because is it is it is it just building up and storing in the servers and nobody cares about it? So my question to you is, A, do you know if anybody has built that into their systems where this old stuff just disappears and we'll never see it again, uh, like if it's not used or interacted with in a long time? And, and B, if that's not the case, then at some point we're going to have to acknowledge that stuff as um, or those items or those those places as historical uh, historical instances where, where we really should go record and preserve the fact that they exist, whether it's in the game or just record it some other way and lift that code out and say, here, yeah. this was the first, you know, now no, we have you're, it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're speaking my language. Um, <laughs> this, this is, no, this is terrific. Um, uh, okay, where to start? Um, <laughs> I, I, th- there are some games that really learn their lesson quite quickly that 
if you don't clean up the trash left by players, it's going to crash your servers. Uh, and the reason why is that you know players you have you have so many players that are playing together in a game. And this is specific to to, to MMOs, to massively mm-hmm. multiplayer online games, um, where everybody's looting corpses. Everybody, you know, you kill something and then you strip the bodies of armor and weapons. And sometimes you find things called vendor trash, or you've got really low level. Um, items that you just don't need. And so what do you do? You don't keep them in your inventory. You chuck them on the ground. Um, and so over time, if, if, if you weren't thinking ahead as a developer, you're basically looking at all of this trash sitting around and that takes up memory that takes up space. And all of a sudden things go wonky. Um, so in a game like world of Warcraft and, and many, probably I think every other MMO, you know, since then, um, things just disappear. You log out of the game, you know, you finish your mm-hmm. session for the night or whatever. You come back the next day and stuff is gone. It's like it's like, you know, the street the street sweeping crew came through and <laughs> spruced up, you know, Azeroth. And all of a sudden it's just really fresh and shiny and stuff. And, and so, yeah. you know, you've, you've got that going on, too. And it just has a practical it's a practical thing because it saves space and it saves memory and it keeps things running quickly because otherwise the computer has to keep track of all of that stuff. And, and mm-hmm. you know, that takes an awful lot of resources. Um with uh, you know, with, with these games, you know, I talk about vanilla. You know, for example, so when a, when a game first comes out, that's really the vanilla edition. It hasn't been patched. It hasn't been upgraded. There are no expansion packs for it. It's basically the game on the day of release. Um, and then as things get added on, you know, especially if you're if you're you know Blizzard, uh, who creates World of Warcraft, you always want to have new content every every year, every couple of years. You always come out with expansion packs and stuff. You just you lose that original flavor. You lose, you know, that, that, and people actually, because WoW has been out for so long, you get really nostalgic about that stuff. I remember having to like, you know, run across, you know, a place called the Barrens, you know, from one place to the other. And it just took mm-hmm. freaking forever. And this is before you could have like flying mounts and things. And so, <laughs> so, you know, ha- having that kind of history preserved somewhere is important. Um, uh, Blizzard used to maintain, or, or someone maintained, you know, apart from Blizzard, an original vanilla WoW server. So if you wanted to log in, you could log in and see what the world used to be like. Blizzard mm-hmm. shut it down for a while. I think it. I think they might have either let it come up or they're now maintaining the server themselves. I don't. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, that was really important, and people were just super distressed that this this one server containing the original version of the game was taken offline and removed from player access. And so people were really down on that. It's it's like. You know, somebody you know, closing the Acropolis of Athens or something. It's like we can't go there anymore. You know, and so, <laughs> so um, you know, in that way, that kind of preservation and that kind of access um, is, I think, to me, super important. And the reason why is that millions of us play these games. We spend so much time in there. We spend so much money. We make things, and not just physical things, but friendships and stuff like that too. And so, so. Um, you know, these, these spaces are as real, you know, to, to many of us as we're walking around, uh, in the real world. Um, there's a, a scholar named Edward Castronova who does a lot of things about economics and video games and stuff. He calls it, he just calls it earth. You have earth and then you're playing in the game. And so, you know, there's a lot of crossover, you know, between the two, but, but yeah, as you, as you play these games, um, you know, they become as, as real to you as, as earth is. And as such, I think they really deserve a chance to be preserved and protected. And also if things happen in there that affect so many people that, you know, they need to have, you know, either monuments or, or something to, uh, to remind people about mm-hmm. what took place. 
because otherwise we're just going to lose it all. And that's billions and billions of man hours or people hours um, that would be ultimately lost. And I think that's uh, that's immoral. Yeah, and I, I feel like part of the ethical conversation that we should or should be having with these game designers um, when they when they have when they have any sort of world or um, you know where they're creating an entire universe uh, or at least a land uh, or or then and then they maybe bring in an archaeological or historical component maybe they don't but either way I feel like one of their advisors should be telling them hey you know you guys are creating something that. I don't know. Let's let's be positive here, and maybe it's going to be around for thirty or forty years. So let's think about that now, and yeah. and think about what you're creating and how many people that's going to impact. It could impact billions of people throughout that those decades as they play. I mean, I don't know how many people World of Warcraft has has impacted. I I went uh, I was in school with a guy um, back in college back in two thousand four and five, and I think World of Warcraft was I don't know was it relatively new around then and. Um, he uh he ended up dropping out of college because of World of Warcraft. Now initially it was because he stopped going to class, <laughs> but yeah, but that you know that negative outcome of playing the game too much actually sent his life in another direction, um, for better or for worse. But that's because of World of Warcraft, and that needs to be acknowledged, you know, historically and culturally. Yeah. No, I, I I certainly think you're right, and this is something that Castronova gets at, and he was writing about this stuff um, with. Uh, uh, EverQuest, uh, which, mm-hmm. which, you know, was, was pre-WoW and, 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 and yeah, you know, you have these real, these, these virtual world events and whatnot that do affect your real world. Um, I, I've known people in the guild I was in who met through the guild and got married, you know, so it has nice. a positive effect too. And that I've, I found others where it totally like blew up their relationship. Uh, you know, <laughs> so you've got that, you've got that going on as well, but, uh, you know, thinking, you know, to, to just these monster companies like Blizzard, uh, like Activision, where you're putting out these titles, you know they're going to sell, you know people are going to play these for years, possibly decades. Um, then, uh, then yeah, you know, I'm I'm assuming, and and some of the listeners are probably telling me, you know, that that uh, that I'm correct that there's going to be an archivist on staff, there's going to be a lore master or somebody mm-hmm. um, who is taking care of these old things they take care of the original code and they've got that stored somewhere they're taking the, you know they have all of the original textures they have all of the original uh, models of the monsters and stuff and and, and you know all of that I, I know for example like uh, 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 Skywalker Ranch um, and uh, Lucasfilm you know they have archivists to preserve all of the stuff from Star Wars and Indiana Jones and the like and they just have that in a big archive in a big warehouse somewhere so so yeah i'm seeing uh, you know or hope to see similar things happening with the video game industry like they've done with the film industry you know god there's so much more we could talk on this like you're right um it's just like an ending never ending hey it's it there almost should be an entire podcast about this subject <laughs> <laughs> so, like like I yeah. said, go over to 8-Bit Test Pit Podcast. Um, it's a little bit on hiatus right now because people have lives and, and, and work and things, but we're, we're going to be revitalizing it if you want to um, continue this conversation. But they've got a number of really great episodes over there right now where they talk about all this kind of stuff. So um, go check that out. Um, we've got one more segment coming uh, on this where we're going to try to tidy this up and not leave you hanging too much with, uh, with a crazy number of questions. Uh, and just send you right over to the 8-Bit Test Pit. So we'll be back in just a second to wrap up this conversation with Andrew Reinhardt. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. 
CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Great. Well, welcome back, everyone. So as we've been talking, Andrew, one of the things that I am just thinking about is all the resurgence, a lot of the computer games that I played as a kid where mid eighties, where we all have a deep nostalgia for them. So, you know, one of my friends just found online, this game that I played as a kid called super sleuth, where you took photos of robots invading a school and read clues buried in children's homework to discover who the villain was. And so we're, we have these deep memories embedded in video games. So we're sort of bringing them back and making them available through the internet. And, you know, it's really interesting because I can't help but think, are they the real game or are these almost like replicas? Um, and how this fits in? I'm sure yeah. you have many thoughts. <laughs> no, this is, this is awesome. Um, with the, you know, with, with what you're saying, I've, I've, I've seen this too, and I've, I've done a bit of work on it. I mean, sometimes I just love games and I just, I need to go go and find them and play. Um, so you can you can go online and you can type in pretty much any Atari title, and someone has made a Java emulator of that particular game. So so for example, um, I I wanted to for better or worse play ET the Extraterrestrial, and so <laughs> you know uh, I don't I don't have a twenty six hundred at home anymore, um, and I don't have the cartridges, but I was able to go online and I could play that just on the screen via my web browser. And it had the same music and it was the same stuff. And somebody had just ported it from the cartridge, you know, onto this to this online platform uh, for better or worse. And you can find a ton of games like that that are old. Um, there, there's another thing, uh, another term that you can call this. And, it's, and this doesn't fit with like Atari games and stuff because, you know, those games are, are, are you know, awesome and, and, you know, had a long life. But uh, you can go onto sites and find things called abandonware. And... You can basically find any game that was published, you know, back in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and you can download copies of those games. Um, you know, there are certain copyright issues. You know, some abandonware sites will only have things that are out of copyright, or they can't find the copyright holder, so they'll put them up. Um, or others will have up all these games until they get a cease and desist letter from the publisher or the rights holder. So, you know, whichever, whichever you know, you're more comfortable with, you can go and you can download these things and you can play them. You can zip them. And this, you know, a lot of times you'll need to have access, you know, for example, to a DOS computer uh, or, or to an older Macintosh or something like that in order to get these things to work. Um, but still, you can find any game that you want or any game that you've ever played. Uh, and you can go and you can find these things and you can play them. And part of this is nostalgia. But part of this is also, you know, going back and actually doing some thorough research, um, you know, uh, and so you might be doing this on modern hardware. You might have to go and find old hardware in order to get the stuff done. Um, but still, the, the content is out there and it's available. And it's almost like going in, into a necropolis and, and doing an excavation within the necropolis of all of this stuff. And you go and you dig down and you find the stuff and you remember what happened back when. And so this is just happening in real time with more modern material. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. I, I just keep thinking, so I have a museum background and just the museum and archiving aspects of this where, you know, there's a big dialogue right now in the museum community about what do we do and how do we handle all of these digital materials? Mm -hmm. um, like, how do you archive code? How do you 
archive video games and the systems needed to run them and you know just sort of dialogues about if you if you're not playing the game the atari game on an atari is it really the same thing you know is the material object of it part of the experience of that game and when you divorce the two things is it really the same game Man, th this is an excellent question, and this is one of the things. And and again, we'll go back to to what Megan Dennis is doing in New York. Uh, if you read in her archaeoethics blog, I think this week, uh, you know, she writes about, you know, going and and getting old hardware and an old cartridge in order to put them together in order to do her research for her case study. Um, and you know, there are other people who have been asking the same question too. You know, uh, playing a Sega Saturn game that is not on a Sega Saturn console is different than trying to figure, find your way around that controller, um, you know, and actually playing it like that. And so you have, you always have this, this kind of haptic component to gameplay. And when I say that, it basically means it's the physical interacting with the mental and emotional experience of gameplay where, um, you know, you have to be able to, to control these things in a certain way in order to make them do it. You know, you can play rock band, on a computer tapping your keys, but it's totally a different experience than playing rock band and you're playing drums or you're playing, you know, the guitar controller that comes with it. So you might get part of the gameplay experience, but you're not going to get the experience where you're actually getting tired. Your arm is getting tired because, you know, you're hitting these notes in rapid succession. Um, and so, so yeah, playing, playing a game that's not on the original hardware, I think you're losing, definitely losing part of the experience. But again, it depends on what you want to get. If you just want to play the game to play the game to see what the fuss is about, that's one thing. But if you want to play it for some kind of authentic experience, then you're going to need to have the hardware too. All right. Well, like I said at the end of the last segment, go over to the 8-Bit Test Pit podcast for, for more of this type of conversation. Um, but for now, on this show, um, I, want to go, I want to go a slightly different direction, something we talked about, um, uh, Andrew, yesterday when we were planning for the show. Uh, well, first off... You yourself, you said you're you're finishing up your PhD at the University of York. I know Megan Dennis and Tara Copplestone, your um, uh, your co-host for 8-Bit Test Pit, are also in schools in the UK. Is there? Yeah, I mean, they're, is they're that, all at York. They're all at York. <laughs> so, too. so is York just like the Archeo Gaming uh, mecca, or is there are there any universities in the United <laughs> States? Just so I can understand that are supporting this effort. <laughs> Or do you know of anybody in the Arco Gaming world that's going to a school in the United States? Uh, gosh, I, I don't, and and I, I really wish that wasn't the case. Uh, yeah, you know, I chose I, I chose York specifically because Megan was there, Tara was there, and then Sarah Perry, you know, is our mutual advisor. Plus, they have a place called the Center for Digital Heritage. And mm -hmm. it's really the only game in town. I mean, they, they've they, they, there are other universities that are doing somewhat similar stuff. I think Southampton in the UK is doing something, uh, but but York is really the go-to place for understanding digital heritage, digital material culture, and the like. Um, the uh, University of Leiden um, mm -hmm. at their department of archaeology it's this palace it's amazing uh and they have a you know an organization called the value project which is managed by their phd students um and they're doing a ton of stuff with video game archaeology too uh and so you know you have this 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 uh, continental european university at leiden and the uk university at york you know working with each other challenging each other and really pushing the pushing it forward and I'm not seeing that happening yet, 
uh, in the United States. I don't think there's a single uh, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for this or not. Uh, somebody again, <laughs> fact check me. But I don't think there's a single department, um, you know, that that uh, or an archaeology department for that matter in the U.S. You know, that is focusing mm-hmm. on digital heritage like York is and like Leiden is. And I wish that would mm. change. You have other. You have you have plenty of, of of other departments like media studies or game studies, um, uh, even English departments. You know, where where you're doing this kind of media archaeology and you can happen to do games, but there's nothing that where games is a focus as digital heritage or as modern material culture, you know, like we've yeah. got in Europe. You know, and I, I want to shift to the, the topic that we were, that I was intentionally going, intentionally uh, intending to go to here shortly, but uh, about public funding, but you just made me think of something too, man, I really want to get into some of these worlds and check them out. But like I said, I'm, the, I'm not a gamer uh, and it's not because I don't want to be. It's just because if I did that, it's all I would do. And then there would be no archaeology podcast network. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just, uh, cause I know, I know myself and I know who I am, but, and, and there's another thing too, like a lot of things, you know, it's a little intimidating. It's a little intimidating to just say, Oh, I'm going to go get into world of Warcraft and jump into the world there and probably die five seconds later. So <laughs> do you know, or, or what do you think about this as a concept? Are there any tour guides set up? Like I can go to somebody, like I can go to you, Andrew and say, okay, meet me here. You, you guide me through setting up the process, setting up a character yeah. and then meet me somewhere in the world and show me around. Is there, is there anybody yeah. doing that yet? Because these worlds are so um, big and massive. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, there are a couple of ways to think about this. Um, you know, f- first of all, um, if you Google value project in video games, it'll bring you to what's called a Twitch channel. Um, Twitch mm-hmm. is a platform for streaming video and it's sometimes live streams. So you can watch things as they happen in real time, um, or they record whatever they're doing and they save that. And you can watch those videos at any time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the value project is really good because, because they go in and they played, for example, a recent game was uh, horizon zero dawn and they did an archeological playthrough of that game twitch and you can watch that now um or you could watch it as they were playing and they would talk about the archaeology of it and what's going on and and uh, they talk about culture and heritage you know as they played the game and that was just really fun to watch and so if you're looking for for these kind of native guides within these games i'm going to value projects twitch channel uh, i think is a really good idea um mm-hmm. there are you know I, i'm sure that that if you you know google archaeo gaming or if you're on social media and you do hashtag archaeo gaming um, you're going to find the usual suspects, you know, who are doing this stuff right now. We all play, um, you know, and some of us like MMOs and some of us like standalone games. Some of us play on steam, uh, which is a PC platform. Others do PlayStation or Xbox games. Some of us do mm-hmm. old school retro games, you know, so it depends on what you like and you can kind of, you know, look through our streams and, and see if there are things, you know, that, uh, you know, that kind of float your boat and then just reach out, um, you know, uh, we're, we, the field is so new or it's still so new that anybody who expresses interest, we're like, yeah, come on, let's go, let's do it. Um, yeah. so, uh, so yeah, just, just drop us a line, you know, drop me a line oh. and uh, we will meet you in world. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things that I did in world of Warcraft, and this is back in the, in, in the aughts in the two thousands <laughs> was, um, uh, I had a small guild called Carpe Pridem. Uh, which if you speak Latin means seize the booty. Nice. And, and so this, this guild was supposed to be, you know, for matching up 
Latin teachers and Latin students. And a lot of times the students would know the game, but not the language. And the teachers would know the language, but not the game. And so we would go in and we would play together and we would learn the game. Yet at the same time, we would be learning Latin too. Um, mm. And so, you know, it was neat to kind of subvert that space, you know, that play space with some actual you know, educational content. But at the same time, you know, we had these native tour guides and, 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 and these Latin speakers, and they were able to work together to get through stuff and, and to learn the language too. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not a new uh, way of thinking about it, but, but um, you know, certainly don't be intimidated. Uh, you know, certainly mm-hmm. reach out. And, you know, nobody starts off knowing how to play a game as complex as WoW, for example. So it's right. it's okay. We you know we're <laughs> we will go back and help you. Um, you know, as you gain a foothold in these different spaces. But you know, that being said, you can do archaeology of solitaire. It's it's fine and it's real. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nice archaeology of Tetris. That'd be fantastic. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Every video game is archaeological. I'm going to go out and say that right now. I, I fully nice. believe it. It doesn't have to have a temple in it to be archaeology. Nice, nice. Well, and that goes for real-world archaeology, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Since we uh, brought up the archaeology of Tetris, can we talk a little bit about the Atari excavation project that we mentioned earlier in the podcast before we have to wrap things up? Yeah, sure, sure. What do you want to know? Well, could you just tell our readers who our listeners um, – <laughs> Um, you know, I'm going back to a slightly different technology, um, who might not have heard about this or seen kind of the information. It was a big splash for a while in some of the newspapers and just kind of tell us a little bit about it and how this project got going. And yeah, yeah, no, you bet. Um, this, okay. So, so there, there, there's this thing, there's this place in the desert of New Mexico uh, in a little town named Alamogordo, which is really in this epicenter of weirdness uh, because it's close to Roswell. It's close to the Trinity Missile Test Site. It's close to White Sands. And, and uh, it happens to be home for, I think, the world's only official video game dump. Um, so this old landfill in Alamogordo uh, was hired by Atari Incorporated back in 1983 to basically allow Atari to dump uh, what was rumored to be probably hundreds of thousands, uh, estimated uh, maybe millions of unsold, unused, and returned copies of the worst video game ever made, and that's in quotes, uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Um, and so, you know, you have this you have this weird story about this clandestine dumping by this multinational corporation of this product that was just rumored to be awful. And this is all happening pre-internet. You know, this happened in 1983, so it happened, and then people forgot about it or a lot of people forgot about it. And then the internet happened and people started to come up with these different conspiracy theories. And did they really dump stuff? And they're like, no, that's crazy. Why would they dump stuff? Or if they did dump stuff, was it just ET? Was it other games? Was it really a concrete slab? Is there a curse? And so, so you, you had all of this stuff happening. And, and, um, in 2013, this, uh, this Canadian entertainment company called fuel, uh, actually successfully negotiated the rights to excavate the Atari dump. Um, and and uh, they, they, they subcontracted this documentary work to Lightbox Studios, which was the entertainment arm, now defunct, um, of Xbox. And Lightbox Studios hired director Zach Penn, 
who gets story credit for the Avengers. He's actually um, the writer of the screenplay for Ready Player One that Steven Spielberg's directing. Mm-hmm. And he he uh, he had actually filmed a, a documentary called Incidents at Loch Ness, uh, which was like this big trolling thing with Werner Herzog. And so you know, here comes this this director guy who's who's firmly rooted in geek culture, you know, to come out and and, and film the excavation. Now now the issue was. They didn't really have any archaeologists, uh, and I don't think they were actually thinking of having archaeologists either. Uh, I just happened to write them a note, and I said, hey, I see that you're doing this excavation of the Atari burial ground. I'm writing on video game archaeology. How are you managing the archaeology? And I didn't hear from them for a few months. Uh, a few months later, I get a phone call, and it's a guy from Fuel, and he's like, are you the video game archaeology guy? And I'm like, I-, I guess, and they said, well... We were wondering if we were to do an archaeological excavation of video games, how would you do it? <laughs> like, are you serious? And so, and so, I'm like, well, I don't know. Let me think about this for a minute. And so, and so, I hung up with them, and I, I contacted a couple of people. Actually, I contacted uh, my friend Richard Rothus, um, who who is doing cultural resource management. He does a lot of modern day, you know, excavation, you know, just as part of his job. And, and so, he and I went back and forth on this. We got back to fuel, and then they put us in touch with Lightbox, and they're like, okay. Uh, and they say, well, how long would you need to excavate? you know, say hundreds of thousands of games. And I said, well, if we worked around the clock and we had, you know, help from, you know, local archaeologists and volunteers and stuff, you know, it might take two to three weeks. And they're like, well, we only have about two days to film this. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> really? And, and, and so they're like, yeah, do you want to come and do it? And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah. And so they're like, get a team together and, uh, you know, you all can come down and, and we'll get it set up. We'll organize this thing. And this is like happening in two and a half weeks, you know? So how do you plan something that's going to happen in two and a half weeks? And so that was just crazy, you know, especially for, for an archeologist and, and, or even a team of archeologists to do something like this, working in tandem with the film crew, working in tandem with the city of Alamogordo in order to, to go in and dig up a bunch of games. That's crazy. Um, so, so yeah, we all, we all said, sure. We volunteered, we drove down, we flew out. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we, we did the excavation and they, they caught it on film and it blew up the internet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is in April 2014 when the, uh, you know, when the excavation is actually going on. And it was just, it was just insanity to, to see global trending on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and my mother, you know, calling me or I, call, I actually, yeah, I, I called her from the, from the, the hotel we were staying, you know, after the excavation, she's like, why are you on the front page of the Forbes website? And I'm <laughs> like what? And so, you know, you know, for, I wish this happened for all kinds of archaeology everywhere, you know, because mm-hmm. because it's not fair, you know, to do something weird. And, and you know, we were accused of it being a stunt or that we faked it. And actually, I, I did a, a blog post about how we faked the excavation, you know, the excavation, um, which people actually believed okay. and had to put in big letters. This is this is not true. This actually really did happen. I was just trolling you on April Fool's Day, um, <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it got the kind of response you would expect from from Howard Carter and King Tut's tomb, and that that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Um, but it was so weird because people are thinking about archaeology in a different way now. You know, you can dig up stuff that's not a hundred years old, three hundred years old, a thousand years old. It can be thirty years old, and you can dig it up, and it's still archaeology. I'm like, yeah, of course you can. And they're like, you know, cartridges are artifacts. And I'm like, well, yes, yes, they are. Um, and then. 
you know, so so you have that going on. And then as archaeologists, you know, we were really interested to see how things behaved in a landfill. You know, what happens when you bury something in the desert for 35 years? You know, what's a, you know, does it decompose or not? Is there other trash in there? And if so, what is it? And and um, you know, do the cartridges still work? You know, if they're buried under there, and 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 this is also you know, kind of getting into the to understanding corporate history, corporate culture, uh, and understanding you know the kind of the nascent inter- you know video game entertainment industry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how did this contribute or not to the video game crash in the 1980s? Um, and so you've got all of these these really interesting questions that are happening too. You know, for most people, they just wanted to see if this stuff was there. You know, but that's the easy question. Um, and for us, it was there was a lot more to to get at. Nice. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time on this podcast. However, um, we do have a couple more questions we want to ask you, Andrew, if you've got the time. And I will just direct people. This is coming out on July first. If you're listening to this on the day that it came out, July first, 2017 which is also the first day you can sign up for the new Archaeology Podcast membership site, um, Archaeology Podcast Network membership site, which should have been a promo you heard at the beginning of the show if I did my job right. So head over to archpodnet.com forward slash members, and at the standard member rate, you can get access to extended interviews where I will put up um, these just a couple more remaining questions that we've got for Andrew. So for the main part of this show... Thank you, Andrew. Um, thank you, April. And um, uh, definitely check out the 8-Bit Test Pit podcast and, and check out all the links. We'll put, I'll try to put as many links as I can in the show notes of all the stuff we talked about, <laughs> all the different games and things. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that, thanks so yeah. much. Yeah, no problem. And, uh, and thanks for taking your time, Andrew. And um, <laughs> we'll talk to you guys next time. And thank you, uh, April's babies, whose names I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're really excited about video games. I'm sure that they are. (laughs) Raise them well. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show was produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.